From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's economy caught COVID. A year in, how's the patient faring? Well, the hospitality industry had to recalibrate entirely. People's new success is, did I keep my restaurants open? And am I only down a little bit year over year? Workers, meanwhile, have had to balance their desire to work with their desire to stay healthy. Yeah, how do you go back and not want to burn your own skin off when you get home because you're scared you're bringing COVID into the house? Economists say no previous downturn looks quite like this one. A free fall followed by a rapid but only partial recovery and an uneven one at that. Without a high school diploma, those individuals tend to have higher unemployment rates than people who have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. Taking Colorado's economic temperature, has the fever broken? Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Shuttered businesses and laid-off employees are a painful reality of the pandemic. But in the last year, there's also been resilience and reinvention. Economic stories we'll share today and tomorrow. And we begin in a parking lot, the site of a mass vaccination clinic. The sky was gray, the snow was spitting, as Hannah Bull skipped down a sidewalk in Denver's Lodo neighborhood last week. She punched her fists in the air joyfully as she joined a line of restaurant workers waiting for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So freeing and exciting. I'm going to hug my mama in six weeks. After she's had her second shot, I've had my one and done. I'm going to hug my mom. And I cried about that on the way to work two days ago. Bull is a server at Snooze Restaurant, the Boulder location. It's a Colorado breakfast chain that's gone national. And like almost 300,000 food service workers in this state and millions in other industries, Bull's had a very tough year. Before this, she was a bartender at a restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, moonlighting as a dance instructor. Then the pandemic hit. The dancing had stopped. The restaurant had stopped. My volunteer work at the Humane Society had stopped. Everything was a complete standstill. And that Charlotte restaurant stayed closed for months. You don't have a reason to get out of bed or get dressed. You have no reason to wash your hair. You're just living for every next moment that just drags on and on and on. And you don't know when it's going to end, so it just feels so heavy all the time. When restrictions eased, Bull returned to work. And hoping to make up for some of what she'd lost, she took on another job at a snooze restaurant in Charlotte. But working as COVID-19 raged was scary. Yeah, how do you go back and, and, and not want to burn your own skin off when you get home because you're scared you're bringing COVID into the house? That was a big issue. Both my roommate and I struggled with it because I worked more frequently than she did. And so she was worried that I would bring something home to her, and that caused a bit of a rift between us. It was terrifying to go back to work, but we both did it because we both needed to, and we both became a bit germaphobic because of it. (laughs) We didn't want to touch anybody or touch anything. Meanwhile, Bull's husband, Raviv, they'd been married about a year, was in London trying to immigrate to the United States. 
The pandemic complicated that whole process. We got no answers for six months. We just didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if he was still on their radar at all. We just had nothing. I just thought it was never going to end. I didn't know when I was going to see my husband again. I didn't know if we were ever getting vaccines, if we'd ever take off our masks. I didn't know if I'd ever leave my house again. As Raviv waited, he got a job offer in Colorado. Hannah has family here. The mother she's so eager to hug lives in Longmont. And so Snooze agreed to transfer her. So far, it's worked out. Bulls is one economic story among, well, as many as there are, Coloradans. For a broader look, I spoke with economist Brian Lewandowski of the Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. Brian, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me here. Who is hurting most after a year of the pandemic in Colorado? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question because I, I think that we can think of who's hurting most in terms of multiple different communities. So I can think of uh, physical communities. Some of the mountain resort communities, for instance, went through a very rough patch and things have improved remarkably, but they're still tough. We can think of communities by age, race, ethnicity, gender, educational attainment, and we've seen a lot of differences there where women uh, were disproportionately impacted early during the recession, and now they've sort of converged with the, the male unemployment rate. We can take a look at educational attainment and people with less relative uh, education without a high school diploma or someone who has a high school diploma. Those individuals tend to have higher unemployment rates than people who have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. Hmm. And, and so those unemployment rates for those with a bachelor's or a master's degree are relatively low. They're in the, the 3% range. Um, so they, that sort of compares and contrasts who's been impacted and, and who hasn't. But I think what we can relate to most notably is these industries that have been disproportionately impacted. Right. So, I mean, so you, you talked about the mountain communities. I gather then that's tourism, which is huge in Colorado. What else would you point to? It is. So, so tourism took by far the greatest hit in terms of job losses. And even though there's been a remarkable recovery of tourism jobs, that cohort of industries still records the greatest job losses year over year in January of 2021. Uh, so there's still a, a long road to recovery. Another industry that was disproportionately impacted is um, the mining industry, which is mostly representing our uh, oil and gas sector in the state. This was an industry that was struggling a little bit before the pandemic even started. And then as we saw curtailment of demand globally, we saw the fallout of prices globally, and that impacted uh, domestic production here at home, which impacted employment in that industry here at home. And I uh, suspect that that had a lot to do with fewer people driving, and uh, if they did, shorter distances. Absolutely. So I think most of us can relate to the early days of the pandemic, uh, the state home orders being in effect, and just how few people were actually out on the roads. People weren't going out to eat. They weren't driving to work. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've got to talk about restaurants. Yeah, indeed. I'm looking at a sector called accommodation and food services, which represents hotels, restaurants, and bars. That was one of the worst hit sectors within our economy for pretty obvious reasons. This is a a sector that sort of uh, went through immediate shutdown, adapted, and then as the year progressed, these restaurants started to open back up and serve more patrons. And then we saw this second rise in COVID cases. It was like an accordion. 
Maybe we can discuss the top-line numbers. Can you say overall how many jobs Colorado lost uh, during the pandemic and how long it will take to recover them? And, and I don't assume that those are the exact same jobs, but to uh, essentially to return to a place of pre-pandemic employment. Sure. So Colorado is a state that lost 376,000 jobs in a matter of about three months. And we peaked our employment in January of 2020. And we were sort of an early state to see uh, a loss of jobs. Most of those job losses were in April of 2020. Uh, But since then, we've added back about 215,000 jobs. So that sounds like a really great recovery. And it, it is a remarkable recovery comparing where we were in 2021, in January 2021, compared to April of 2020. But there's still a a jobs deficit there. We're still down about 160,000 jobs. We're still down 5.7%, which just sort of illustrates the level of job growth we're still going to need before we get back to, you know, quote unquote, normal. 166,000 jobs. That's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of people. There's a lot of jobs. And... You know, we, we think about how long it could take to recover those jobs. And I think, you know, one thing I've done is compared to prior recessions, to prior cycles. And if we go back to the tech bubble burst, I, I don't know if you lived through that experience, but uh, we, we saw quite a magnitude of jobs lost. It took us four years to recover the jobs lost in Colorado during the, the tech bubble burst of 2001. And then if we fast forward to the Great Recession, we lost a record number of jobs at that time, and it took us about six years to recover those jobs lost. When we compare this event to the Great Recession, it's so different. We lost uh, 22 million jobs in this country in a matter of about two months versus it taking two years for us to reach the bottom during the prior two recessions. I see. So the... The dive was fast. And I suppose uh, among economic prognosticators, the question is how fast does something rebound? I mean, are we talking a six-year, an eight-year timeline, you know? Yeah, and I I think that this event is so fundamentally different that we don't see it taking the same amount of time as as what we experienced in the last two downturns. Oh, you think it'll be more, more rapid? Much more rapid, oh. and I think we, we've already seen that. I mean, we, we we saw a record decrease in employment, but we also saw a record rebound in employment during the 10 months following that initial fall. So there is still a large gap there, almost as bad as the worst month of the Great Recession. But that snapback uh, so far has happened pretty quickly, but it's, it's sort of slowed, right? So the the pace of recovery has uh, slowed compared to the early months of the recovery. And I I think that we're at this point that it's going to be hard to recover the remaining jobs Hmm. until we reach some sort of herd immunity in this country. We need our businesses to be able to reopen at full capacity. Fully, yeah. We need people getting on planes again and filling up our hotels again, you know, taking those vacations again until we can recover those jobs lost in the tourism industry. That's still where most of our jobs have been lost. And I I really don't think it's a lack of demand or a lack of people wanting to do those things. 
I think it's that they can't do those things. Either they don't feel comfortable because they haven't been vaccinated or because of uh, some of the government restrictions on some of these businesses opening back up. Brian, earlier you mentioned how lower income folks were hardest hit by unemployment, disproportionately laid off. What are the effects of that on an economy? And, you know, I'm also thinking about the $1,400 checks arriving in many people's bank accounts and uh, whether that is softening the effects of this. Yeah, there, there were so many unexpected things that we observed going through this recession compared to prior cycles. For one, we lost a record number of jobs. Therefore, we lost a record amount of earnings from employment early on during the cycle, but we saw a record increase in personal income in this country. So why would we see a record increase in personal income during a a recession where we lost that magnitude of jobs? It was the the government stimulus. So we saw not only state unemployment, but there's federal unemployment that was sort of uh, stacked on top of state unemployment. So it made those benefits a little bit better. It sweetened the pot a little bit. Um, PPP helped businesses stay in business, helped those employers retain their employees, uh, helped them pay those employees, and then those government stimulus checks went out to households. So through all of this, we saw income increase when we would normally see a decrease. And then, um, you know, normally we would spend our incomes on a variety of goods and services but many of those services that we're normally spending money on were sort of off the table. Oh. We weren't taking vacations, buying airline tickets, renting hotel rooms. We weren't going out to dinner. We weren't getting our hair cut. People weren't going to the nail salons. All of these face-to-face services that we normally consume were, were off the table. So uh, what, what we actually saw then is people shifted their attention to goods. And we saw retail sales rebound in a V-shaped recovery. Mm. And um, this is how Jeff Bezos does so well in in the pandemic, right? Because everyone's buying stuff on Amazon. Yeah. And so there's all of these behavior changes. So one of those behavior changes is shifting from services to goods. Another behavior change is ordering all of those goods off of Amazon or other e-retailers. Uh, starting to buy groceries online and curbside pickup or, or home delivery. There's all of these behavior changes. Working from home is another behavior change. Yeah. And so these um, strike me as perhaps more fundamental long-term changes in the economy. I mean, I just think about my own life. I started having groceries delivered. I'm not sure I'm going back to the grocery store model, the bricks and mortar model. And of course, we've all seen how flexible work can be remotely, at least in some jobs. Do you think these are signals of permanent change? I absolutely think there's some signals of permanent change, but I think that we've also perhaps swung to an extreme during this pandemic. Uh So a a couple of examples of that. Um, we, We can even measure that in terms of retail sales nationally. We saw 40% growth in e-commerce sales in the second quarter of 2020. But that slowed a little bit in the third and fourth quarter. Work from home, there's this uh, data series called teleworking due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We saw this spike to one third of workers in May of 2020. And this sort of pulled back as we walked through the rest of the year. 
So I, I think that there's definitely some behavior changes there where the, the pandemic forced people to try things that they had not tried before. Maybe that's working from home. Maybe it's uh, any of us, even, you know, grandma and grandpa signing on to Amazon or to Kroger and, and ordering some goods and some groceries online. They had never tried that before, but they tried it because of the pandemic. And it's going to be a little bit sticky where, you know, maybe they don't do it 100% of the time mm -hmm. in the future, but it'll be part of their routine in the future. Don't get me started on trying to teach my parents Grubhub. <laughs> Brian. Uh, you do a regular survey called the Leeds Business Confidence Index, asking business people what they think is going to happen next. And as the name implies, how confident they are. What is that survey telling you? So we, we produce a quarterly Leeds Business Confidence Index. We've done this since 2003. And we ask business leaders in the state about their outlook one quarter ahead and two quarters ahead. And our last survey was in December. And business leaders suspended their optimism for, for that period of time, taking a look at the first quarter. Remember that that coincided with the rise in COVID cases, the increase in the, the shutdown of some of our tourism businesses, like restaurants and bars, mm -hmm. again. And so I, I think that business leaders were just sort of uncertain as they were looking at the first quarter. But as we looked out further to the second quarter of 2021... Which, by the way, is April 1st, right? Is, is April 1st. Yeah, okay. Uh, April Fool's Day, there's a <laughs> they, there's a sharp rise in optimism where I felt like at, at the end of 2020 that these business leaders could see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, see that better times uh, were ahead. And maybe that vaccinations were on the horizon. Absolutely. So they, they talked about some specific things like uh, vaccinations and when they expect their employees to return to the office place. And they reflected on things about worker productivity when they're at home versus when they're in the office. We have our next LBCI that will be released on April 1st that will look at the upcoming two quarters. Yep. So watch out for that. Watch out for that, indeed. What happened to productivity during the pandemic? The jury's out. It's sort of a mixed, a mixed bag a little bit. Um, when we surveyed our business leaders about this, we got different responses depending on the industry that they're in. I think that the general sentiment, though, is that worker productivity is a little bit better when people are in the office. Hmm. I, I think that, you know, anecdotally, I think a lot of us have stories about our own personal productivity, how, how much better it is at home or not. But that's sort of the collective wisdom of our panel. Brian, this has been fascinating. Thanks for helping us draw all these connections. Thanks for having me. Brian Lewandowski keeps tabs on Colorado's economy as executive director of the Business Research Division at CU Boulder. Now, you didn't hear this, but his adorable and supremely well-behaved pooch, Phoebe, was in his office as he spoke. Another trimming of pandemic work life. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been nearly two years since we released an episode of our podcast since Columbine. We didn't expect to add another episode to the series, but our conversation last week with former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis was so important, it just had to be shared. And it does, it re-traumatizes you. But I refuse to be helpless or hopeless. I refuse to give up. I'm Nathaniel Miner. Real advice about seeking help and not trying to power through alone. A special episode of Since Columbine and the entire series, anywhere you get your podcasts.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One trend to try to help businesses struggling through the pandemic is to close down streets to traffic. CPR's Nathaniel Miner found that trend may be here to stay. It was one of those warm winter afternoons in Colorado. Dana Sadowski and her husband Ryan were sitting outside the Trailhead Tap House in Golden, sipping pints of beer. Dana says the good weather is just one reason that she prefers to be outside. I think it's safer with the open air. We actually were just talking about uh, a weekend trip and he kind of wants to do Vegas and I do not want to do that yet because it's definitely enclosed um, where I want to go to somewhere more open air, somewhere warm so we can be outside. There's a lot more space than usual here, reflecting the need to keep people apart during the pandemic. The parking spaces in front of this restaurant and a few others in town have been turned into outdoor seating. Other cities around the state, like Breckenridge, Paonia, and Littleton, went even further, shutting down entire blocks to traffic. Ryan Sadowski says they visited some of those places last summer. Yeah, no, I, I like when it's closed off. It's just more relaxed. It, I don't know. When the streets shut down, it just seems, it seems like you're kind of locked into this area and you can go in and out of shops and whatnot. I don't know. I like it a lot more. The State Department of Transportation has given out about $3 million to help cities transform their downtowns. And now, CDOT's program is about to get a lot bigger. The General Assembly has passed legislation that'll pour $30 million into this program and another meant to make busy streets safer. State Senator Rachel Zenziger is a Democrat from Arvada. She's one of the bill's lead sponsors. It's very timely right now. It it not only helps us with one of CDOT's main goals, which is tackling projects that do improve safety, but then it's also recognizing that our, our business community and our communities in general are just really struggling because of the pandemic. Last summer, Durango closed down a travel lane on Main Avenue and eliminated about 50 parking spots. That freed up about 10,000 square feet for restaurants and businesses to use. Sarah Hill with the city says their car-free program was a big hit with businesses. It honestly feels kind of like a weekend festival almost. You know, there's a ton of people out and about. Uh, the restaurants, businesses did a really good job of bringing in flowers. And uh, it was just really nice, kind of sunny, summery festival, fun outdoor vibe. It was great. Road trips were one of the safer vacation options last year. And Southwest Colorado was a big destination. All of Durango's new space gave businesses the room they needed to serve more customers. Hill says from June to November, sales tax income for the city actually increased over 2019. The city will repeat last year's program this year, and it might go even bigger. We are kind of um, exploring the idea of maybe doing weekend shutdowns almost as a trial to see how what some sort of a pedestrian-type mall would look like on Main Ave. Dana Sadowski says she loves the idea of more car-free spaces like she's seen in her travels. We've been to Germany, Poland, um, Italy, and... Croatia, and yeah, you're you're sitting in the street, so we're used not used to that, but yeah, on vacation we see it all the time, so I think it makes sense. It might be a while before overseas destinations open back up, but Coloradans won't have to travel quite as far to get that European plaza vibe. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Earlier this hour, we heard from a restaurant worker whose life was thrown into chaos by the pandemic. But she's gotten the vaccine and more steady employment, so things finally seem to be looking up. 
Yet, it's still quite uncertain in the restaurant biz these days. According to our next guest, Sonia Riggs leads the Colorado Restaurant Association. Sonia, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. What's been the financial toll for Colorado's restaurants? Have you done that math? We have. It's been devastating. Um, In 2020, restaurants lost over $3 billion in Colorado collectively. And based on a survey that we conducted in January, we estimated that about 93,000 jobs were lost last year for restaurant employees. Okay, $3 billion with a B dollars in losses for Colorado restaurants. And uh, give me that number one more time of employees. 93,000 jobs were lost in 2020 for restaurant employees. Wow. Give me a sense of just like the ups and downs of the last year. Remind us of all that restaurateurs and servers and, and other employees have had to navigate. Sure. Well, I mean, it started in uh, March, on March 16th, basically a year ago, when the governor announced that the very next day restaurants would need to close for indoor dining. And so, you know, there were a lot of uh, panicked people that were trying to quickly figure out how to shift gears and either close completely for some time or shift to purely takeout and delivery. Um, They had, you know, perishable food that they needed to figure out what to do with. A lot of them donated it. They had alcohol orders coming in. They were getting ready for St. Patrick's Day. It was a lot of pivoting and a lot of people that had a tough first couple of months, I will say. I mean, businesses, yeah, businesses at that point were being asked to turn on a dime. That's what I hear you saying. They were. Yeah. They were. Sonia, do you remember taking phone calls from folks at that point? and, And what did they sound like? Oh, my goodness. We had hundreds and hundreds of phone calls every day because things were changing so rapidly at that point. Right. It was not only what are the current rules that I have to live by and things were changing daily. We we got updates on, first of all, alcohol wasn't allowed to be um, sold to go. And then it was a few days later. And then what did the rules look like? What did last call look like when things were opening up? You know, there were so many questions we've got inundated and just were working seven days a week oftentimes till one or two in the morning, our entire staff, just to try to help answer questions and make sure that we had accurate information that we were getting out to this industry. So a lot of late nights, early mornings, and what was in store next for this industry? Yeah. You know, then in summer, we saw um, expanded outdoor dining. And that was one of the things that we had worked very hard with the state, first of all, and with many Um, local governments to make happen. And I think people saw a little bit of hope, right? We saw the COVID numbers start to go down. Uh, We saw people feel better, obviously, with warm weather and being able to expand their patios. There were restaurants that were telling us they were able to hang on. We also saw the first round of PPP funding. And while a number of people were trying to figure out how to navigate that, it felt certainly like some hope. Um, You know, when we look at, you know, fast forward to fall, Things got really rough again. We saw numbers go back up. We saw another wave of shutdowns with, you know, some of the counties going back into red. And we saw restaurants running out of money and doing more layoffs than they had, um, you know, originally. You know, now we're starting to, I think, feel a little bit of hope again as we see funding on the federal side that's specifically dedicated to the restaurant industry. And we're also seeing, you know, some state funding. We did see a small package last year in the emergency session from the Colorado legislature. They're now talking about an additional round of restaurant-specific funding, not only uh, in additional sales tax relief over the summer, when more restaurants will be able to take advantage of it. Um, Also, they're looking at 
potentially some dedicated grant funding in Colorado to restaurants as well. But we're also seeing restaurants being vaccinated now, which I think is the biggest the biggest sign of hope and, and seeing the numbers continue to stay lower again. So uh, and, and as the warm weather approaches, I think we'll start to see people feel even more hopeful. And, and so, Sonia, are you sensing more optimism now in the restaurant community? We are. We, we definitely are. This industry, however, has still been hurt significantly over the last year. I think it's widely known that we were one of the hardest hit industries out there. Um, when I say optimism, two months ago, about half of restaurants that we interviewed said that they would still consider closing in less than six months. And our March survey said only about 40% are still considering permanently closing within six months. I say that because it's important to know that restaurants are still having a really challenging time. And until we start seeing capacity changes in a pretty significant way, it's going to be very difficult to get restaurants on the road to recovery. Hmm. It's still touch and go. Of course, restaurants have closed. And is there an establishment that stands out to you? A story. Well, there are a number. I mean, you know, El Chapultepec closed after, you know, how many years? It had been a Denver icon. Um, the Fresh Fish Company has has been around for many, many years. They had to close their doors permanently. I mean, there's, I can, I can go on and on. It was so heartbreaking to watch um, not only restaurants close permanently, but we got the number of phone calls that we got from restaurant owners saying, I just had to lay off 50 staff today. I just had to lay off 100 staff today. It was just heartbreaking. I am learning right here, right now, that Fresh Fish Company closed. I'm so bummed. I that know. place was so kind of wonderfully old school. I think it was one of the few places I could get scrawed in Colorado. Yeah. Um, so do you expect, as we emerge from the pandemic, do you expect a full recovery of employment? Is that just a matter of time? Or has something changed more fundamentally and more permanently that means we might not get back to where we were before all of this? Well, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, number one, people are economists are saying, you know, it may be three to five years before restaurants really get back to where they were pre-pandemic. But I think the other hard truth about it, um, and this can be well, good in some ways, bad in others, right, is that restaurants learned to survive um, those that have remained open on less, right? With fewer people, some of them have changed the way, a lot of them have changed the way that they're working, right? Mm -hmm. They they now do a lot more to go and delivery. It may be that we don't see as many employees hired back. We're also seeing costs continue to increase, um, you know, wages and, and other things that are impacting them. So it'll be, you know, certainly something that we're going to be paying close attention to, but I, don't, I think it's going to be quite some time before we see what we saw prior to the pandemic. You talk about some of the kind of innovations that have occurred. I think of menus through QR codes. I think of uh, places that pivoted to takeout and pivoted to alcohol sales. Were there other examples of innovations that you saw and ones that might carry over? Yes, you, you'd mentioned fun cocktail pairings and, and wine pairings. Um, I saw family meals. You know, I purchased provisions from restaurants, and especially in the early days, right? Like tomatoes and whole loaves of bread, flowers, you know, things that I wouldn't traditionally think of going to my local restaurant for. You know, we're also, we also saw some really unique outdoor winter dining, you know, igloos and, you know, teepees and greenhouses and, 
and a lot of heaters outside. I think that is going to be interesting to see whether we continue to see that in future years because it still adds capacity. And I think people have really enjoyed that those unique dining experiences. We've talked about capacity, uh, which means butts in seats at restaurants. But do servers, do hosts want to come back into an environment where there might be more capacity, where there's bustle? Uh, talk to me about the worker base and their desire to get back to work, given, you know, what is still a touch-and-go situation health-wise. Right. Well, certainly one of the reasons we had been pushing for so long to get restaurant workers in the same category as grocery store workers is because not only are they on the front lines every day serving people, providing food for the vaccine, but they're also providing it to people with that aren't wearing masks, right? So now that we've had some restaurant-specific vaccination clinics around the state, and we are hearing from the governor's office that there will be more, we are seeing people tell us that they're anxious to get vaccinated because they want to get back to work and and they want to feel more comfortable when they're at work. You know, I say that, but on the other side, I'm also hearing that restaurants are having a difficult time hiring employees, that they are struggling to find employees despite the high unemployment rate. Well, and partly because people were making more on unemployment than they were making in some of these jobs, no? You're right, especially you'd mentioned servers, and let's talk about bartenders too, which traditionally make a really significant, you know, in some cases, it can be staggering amount of money. Um, And I say that proudly because I think we've got some great jobs in this industry. But in order to be able to make that money, you need the people to actually be there in person, right? Now, certainly people have been generous with their takeout and delivery as well. But but what they really count on is that one-on-one interaction, which we haven't seen. Have restaurateurs tapped into a lot of their savings? And I, I wonder if it just makes them less resilient going forward if indeed they're able to stay open. Well, I'm, I think that's a good point because, you know, restaurants in good times operate on a 3 to 5% profit margin on average. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of those folks, especially your local, you know, mom and pop neighborhood gems who everybody loves, have really had the hardest time. You know, we've seen in some cases, quick service restaurants and pizza delivery companies tell us that they actually have done better year over year. But it's the it's those gems that are the local places that people have put their blood, sweat and tears in for many years that have suffered the most. And it's difficult. You know, it was difficult in the beginning months. People, like I said, people felt a little hope going into the summer. But there's only so long that you can dip into your savings if you have them, you know, before they go away. And so they've been relying heavily on you know, grant programs on um, the PPP, on loans, on, you know, wherever they can scrape up some cash to be able to get by, which is, you know, why that capacity is going to be so important uh, as quickly as we can lift it um, as it's safe to do so. Well, and, and so is there a permanent changing of the restaurant landscape because of the pandemic? In other words, is it far more likely that I'll see a fast casual chain after this, then I will, as you describe it, a mom and pop locally owned blood, sweat and tears sort of place. Well, you know, that's a great question. And I actually haven't hadn't thought about it that way yet. But uh, y- yeah, I think so. I mean, number one, who are the ones that have been closing? It is those mom and pop uh, local independent restaurants that have been the hardest hit. So so just by nature of those closing, we're going to see fewer of them. You know, what I think what we learned from this particular pandemic that it might be a safer business bet, right, for you if you are one of those quick service chains, because those seem to do better. Mm. 
you know, that being said, people still love the experiences they get from those full service, sit down in-person restaurants. So they get to know their servers, they get to know their bartenders. You have some of life's greatest moments have, have come from some of those sit down, full service local restaurants. And so, you know, we are hearing there's a lot of pent up demand. I'm hopeful that we'll start seeing growth at some point um, in the future. I don't know how soon that'll be. We need to get restaurants back to 100% capacity first before we can begin to recover. But but I'm hoping we'll see that sometime in the future. Can you give us an example of a restaurateur whose adaptability uh, and innovation you really admire? Oh, goodness. There are so many out there. Um, for example, our, our chairman of the board owns two restaurants in Steamboat, Truffle mm. Pig and Carl's Tavern. He and I spoke recently and said, we're, I, we're doing really well. We're only 10% down year over year. I say that because it really struck me. People's new success is, did I keep my restaurants open? And am I only down a little bit year over year? Whereas in a, in a typical year, that I wouldn't get a call like that. People would say, you know, you need to be up in order to be considered successful. But you know, the, the things that they did were expanded outdoor dining. They do a lot of takeout and delivery, um, really unique, you know, cocktail pairings and trying to find ways to be efficient, which I think, you know, restaurateurs are going to use those lessons years into the future. Sonia, thank you so much for the perspective. Oh, you're so welcome. Sonia Riggs is president and CEO of the Colorado Restaurant Association, and she's been checking in with us throughout the pandemic. I've got to say, I've seen some remarkable servers at work in the past year. I think as well of the host at my neighborhood Italian joint, who always remembers your name and went from graciously greeting sit-down customers to furiously fielding phone calls for takeout orders. Now, with the dining room partially reopened, he manages to do both. So thank you, Oscar. If there's a hospitality worker who stands out to you, who's made the pandemic a little less isolating, email us about them. Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. We do ask that you not be associated financially with the establishment whose employee you celebrate. All right, our look at the state's economy a year into the pandemic continues tomorrow with Makisha Booth of Denver. She runs Sistabiz Global Network, which nurtures small businesses and the Black women who run them. She says even before the pandemic, these entrepreneurs were up against a lot. A lot of the challenges that Black women in business faced prior to the pandemic had to do with, first of all, rooted in historic and systemic racism, but in a very practical, tangible way, looked like lack of access to capital and resources, lack of access to social capital and the network needed to grow a scalable business. And also just maybe lack of community and exposure to other entrepreneurs that could really support their growth as business owners. Then came the pandemic and this summer's protests for racial justice and Black women running businesses in Colorado faced a make-or-break moment yet again. That's tomorrow on Colorado Matters in a special series produced by Michelle P. Fulcher. The pandemic forced museums to close their doors a year ago. Many have since reopened, but with a number of changes, including capacity limits. 
CPR's Monica Castillo spoke with Coloradans about their experiences. Museums have a reputation for being quiet places, but usually they're filled with the voices of guests, visitors' footsteps, and even a few noisy exhibits. Although museums are open once again, their hallways and exhibitions are not as crowded as they were before the pandemic. Many would-be visitors are still apprehensive. Here's Taj Wanling Matabali, Julie Long, and Megan Berry. And it's funny, I called one of my friends asking if she wanted to go, and she was like, absolutely not. That's a super spreader event. I've been a little apprehensive to go to places that are large and with more crowds. Now we're pretty strict with um, the quarantine protocols. So it was sort of weird to be in a space again. But after some extra precautions, they couldn't wait to get back to the places that brought them joy. It was just exciting to be able to go somewhere. <laughs> it was just that taste of normal life. It was nice to, to be in an environment that felt more normal, even though still distance. Both my kids commented that it smelled like we were at the swimming pool because everything was so clean and sanitized. Nancy Clarissa Updike has taken her family to the Denver Art Museum and the Museum of Nature and Science since they reopened. She says she's enjoyed every outing. It was soul food. I mean, everyone was just, it felt like a big trip. You know, we went to the museum for an hour, an hour and a half, and it felt like we had been to Europe. The first time we went and there was live piano music, you could tell that people just hadn't been around other people in art and music and were yearning for it because people just sort of stopped to listen to the piano music. And they were playing Disney songs and, you know, some old classics. Updeck has since returned to the Museum of Nature and Science for their family-friendly and COVID-safe programs. They set up little coloring stations on carpeted mats, kind of eight feet away from each other. So he got to color and he could see other kids. He rode the escalator up and down many times. They have buttons in the diorama exhibits that little kids can press and they'll make noises for the different animals. So it was really interactive. The spaces were big enough that he could kind of run around. And kids are so joyful, you know, even though they've adapted pretty well to masks and stuff, kids are wearing them there. I mean, my son's only two and He'll wear a mask sometimes just because he sees adults wear them. But even though kids have adapted, it's nice to just see them being kids in like a communal space to have some freedom and play. Like these children playing in the museum space exhibit. No! Oh man, I was so close. For Tatiana Rivera, going to museums became a way to stave off loneliness. You know, my family's in California, I'm here in Colorado and Denver, and I thought, well, this is a great way to get out and have a reason to put some normal clothes on. She challenged herself to visit a new museum each weekend in January, which took her to DAM, the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver, the Cana y Arena exhibit in Aurora, and the Museo de las Américas. Being alone but being out in, in the community uh, is a very different experience. It doesn't feel as lonely. It almost feels like it, it's, it feels slightly normal again. Um, and there is, a, I, I think there's something really fun about dressing up for yourself to take care of yourself. In February, Denver allowed museums to welcome back visitors to 50% of their capacity. The days of nearly empty museums may be numbered, but for visitors looking for a little escape today, all you need is the price of admission. I'm Monica Castillo. 
CPR News. Becoming a U.S. citizen looks different during the pandemic. CPR's May Ortega has the story of people going through the naturalization process and how it has changed over the last year. Welcome to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Denver Field Office. And in just a few moments, it will be my privilege to administer the Oath of Allegiance and officially welcome you all as our newest American citizens. Wendy Shu has been waiting a long time for this day. I lived in the U.S. like my entire life. And, you know, the past year, I, we, my family and I just felt like maybe it's time to get our citizenship. And so, yeah, I'm really excited for this to finally be happening. Shu and her parents moved from China to the United States when she was four years old. Now she's 23 and is very ready to take her oath of allegiance. I woke up this morning and I was like, man, it's, it's finally here. She wore a dusty rose blazer, a tan turtleneck, and a face covering designed with pink and red flowers on a cream backdrop. Shu took her seat in a large but mostly empty room with 11 other people who were about to become citizens too. They were all wearing masks, sitting eight feet apart, and at the front of the room stood a man in a suit, also wearing a mask. You look around the room, there's a lot of empty space. His name is Andy Lambrick, and he's the director of the USCIS Denver Field Office. Part of his job is to administer the oath during these ceremonies. Normally, our ceremonies would be packed full of family and friends here to celebrate. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that makes me most sad about this whole thing, is that we're not able to have those full celebrations. Shu's family stayed home for this. They wouldn't be allowed past the lobby downstairs anyway. Without then any further ado, I am going to administer the oath. So if I can have you please stand and raise your right hand in the air and repeat after me. I hereby declare on oath In the before times, these ceremonies would happen in libraries, museums, and even at Rocky Mountain National Park. As many as 60 people were sworn in together, and the whole thing could take close to an hour. Now it's all done here, in this room, 12 at a time, in about 10 minutes. It might not be ideal, but it does what it's supposed to do. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, you're now American citizens. Now that Shu is officially an American, she's got one thing on her mind. I'm excited to register to vote for the next election cycle. Um, That's one of the things I'm most excited to do now that I'm a U.S. citizen. Everyone gets ready to vote. Everyone's out there voting. And I'm like, I wish I could do it too. (laughs) And now she can. For Shu, this day came sooner than she thought it would. She applied for naturalization in September and was told the process could take up to a year. But five months later, here she is, a new U.S. citizen waving a tiny American flag. But not everybody's journey has been so fast. Aziz Vahobov has been in limbo for nine months. Vahobov says he wants to become a citizen for a lot of reasons. Like Shu, he's eager to contribute more to his community. I'm not just want to be the person who just making money and feeding kids and just doing uh, my regular routine. I like voting in elections, but I cannot use those opportunities because I'm not a citizen. Vahobov, his wife, and two kids moved to Denver from Tajikistan in Central Asia six years ago. When Vahobov applied in June, average processing time for naturalization application was nine months. Now, the USCIS website says it can take 13. That's the longest average wait time the office has seen since 2009. 
And it's expensive, too. The whole process has cost Vaho above $725. The USCIS website says the filing fee starts at $640. USCIS spokesperson Debbie Cannon says the longer wait times are because of the pandemic. She says demand has gone up while capacity has gone down and that every case is different. Vahobov says he was initially told processing would take three months. Then it was pushed back to the fall. And now... We don't have any exact answer, just waiting. And that's been a little stressful for him. He says he wants to visit family in Tajikistan, but can't because he's worried that the opportunity for an interview will come while he's gone. Vahobov has been taking this time to study up for his citizenship test. And when the day finally comes to take his oath, he'll be ready. I'm May Ortega, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks to the team that captains our ship safely through the canals of information. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.